So Advent, the coming of Christ, this beautiful piece of art uh, made by Scott Aisman and Aaron Craig, uh, inviting us to reflect on this cosmic Christ child coming to us. Because Advent is a time where Christ is uh, adventing. Advent means to come, uh, add to, then uh, vent part comes from the word uh, to come or to arrive. So it's this arriving of Christ or this coming of Christ, which takes on different sorts of meanings at different points in church history and even at different points in our own lives. Certainly the first coming of Christ happened 2,000 years ago in the Incarnation, Jesus Christ being born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem uh, 2,000 years ago. But in the church's tradition, as we think about Christ coming or appearing, this image has become layered. So we're not just talking about the first arrival of Christ in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago as Jesus the Christ, but also the future coming of Jesus, that Jesus will return in a body. There will be a return of Christ, an appearing of Christ, which brings all things to a culmination, things in heaven and things on earth, all ideas, all forms, all parts of creation finding their fulfillment and their proper end. Amen. But we don't know when it is. We don't know. We have no idea what the timeline is. And so this has led to this season that for 2,000 years, Christians have entered into this tension, this mystery of when will Christ appear? And what does it mean to reflect on the advent that Christ has already given us when he was first incarnated? What does it mean to reflect on the life of Jesus that might appear around us? And what does it mean to hold the mystery of Christ's second coming and the mystery of the renewal and ending of all things and passing away and rebirth of all things in a cosmic sense? The first text in our Advent assigned text from the lectionary, which Christians around the world will be reading today and Christians through time have read on this first Sunday of Advent. This text takes us right into the heart of these questions. And so I invite you if you have a pew Bible or a Bible from home, I invite you to open it up if you would like to, to the Gospel of Mark. That's the Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament. If you're looking in a pew Bible, it'll be uh, about three quarters of the way through when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can go to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 24. I'll give just a brief bit of context for this scripture before we start reading it, and then I'll read through the scripture from beginning to end in one reading. The context that's important to note is that Jesus, at this moment, is standing in front of the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was sort of the peak of religious and cultural, uh, sort of the peak representation of their religion and their culture. It was the place of worship, the place of sacrifice. It was also an engineering feat. I mean, look around this room, this humble little sanctuary. Would any of us know how to do this anymore? Beams of wood, things just leaning on other things and holding together. You know, it's an incredible feat to build anything. Already we've lost so many of these tangible skills among ordinary people. We don't know how to build these sorts of spaces. 2,000 years ago, the temple was this massive, beautiful, arch architectural wonder, and Jesus stands in front of this, the peak of culture, religion, the peak of all that the Jews have been working towards and longing for, this beautiful temple, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on stone. This entire temple is going to fall. 
And, and it's sort of a strange message. Like, what does he mean? And Jesus explains at one point that he's talking about his body being a temple. At another point, he says uh, warnings later on in this very passage that sound very familiar to us because we know in 70 AD that grand temple was destroyed. The Romans had had enough of the Jewish revolts. The Romans sent in military force, surrounded the city, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. And in a cosmic sense, Christ is accurate not just about the temple, but about every space. Look around. At some point, this building will be gone. At some point, no stone will stand on stone. You could look at any building in our city, any building in our world, and you know that at some point, given enough time, no stone will stand on stone. So what is the advent? What is the, the incoming end that Jesus is referring to? That mystery is at the heart of our text. So we're going to pick up in verse 24. And before this, he's been just talking about this temple, how no stone will stand on stone, and how ultimately there will be this, uh, this great disaster that comes upon God's people. Then in verse 24, he carries on and takes it to even more of a cosmic level. This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. And in those days, after that affliction, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give her light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels, and they will gather together the chosen from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the sky. But learn the parable from the fig tree. Now when its branch softens and it produces leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, you know that he is near at the doors. Amen, I tell you that this generation most certainly does not pass away until all these things happen. The sky and the earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But as for the day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Keep watch. Be alert. For you do not know when the moment is. Just as a man gone abroad, leaving his household and giving power to his slaves, to each a task of his own, also commanded the doorkeep that he should be vigilant. Be vigilant, therefore, for you do not know when the Lord of the household comes, whether at evening 
or at midnight, or at cock crow, or in the morning. So that, arriving suddenly, he does not find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all. Be vigilant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So be vigilant about what? The end. Which end? I don't know. So let's just walk through this language of of endings and, and the question of what we're talking about. Are we talking about the final cosmic end here, Jesus? It sounds pretty cosmic. Son of man coming on clouds, angels, messengers going out into all corners of the earth to gather in those who are shaped as Christ, God's faithful. And then a word going out to the ends of the earth and the ends of the sky or the ends of the heaven, a final word that will gather all things back together. Are we talking about here the end end? Are we talking about something equivalent to the sun expanding and swallowing up the earth or black holes colliding and sucking all things back in to a single point of singularity? Are we talking about that end? Well, also it's kind of confusing if we're talking about that end because Jesus says all these things will happen in a generation. And so on the one hand, it sounds extremely cosmic, but on the other hand, he says this will happen in a generation. Well, what did happen in a generation is that in 70 AD, about 40-odd years from Jesus' teaching, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And God's people are scattered away from Jerusalem, this apocalyptic event that spells out the end of one age and the beginning of a new age, in a very real sense, the end of one thing and the beginning of the next. So is Christ talking here about a cosmic end to all things? Is Christ speaking here of a particular end to the people he was speaking to? And if it is about that particular end in 70 AD, why is it that Christians for 2,000 years have been reading and resonating with this ending if it's something that occurred over 1,900 years ago? But as so many things are in Scripture, it never just means one thing. In the the biblical imagination of time, time is not strictly linear. In the biblical imagination of time, time is not strictly circular. Time sort of spirals upwards. If you think about a year as, as one rotation of a circle, you know, you start the year today, happy new year, happy first day of Advent, boom, we start the day. And the year loops all the way around and there's Christmas, and the year keeps going and there's Lent and there's Easter, And the year keeps going, there's ascension and an ordinary time in Christ the King Sunday, and boom, a new year begins. And if you layer those years, year over year over year in the spiral, you get these moments of thin time. Every Christmas is kind of layered up on a vertical level with every other Christmas. And every Easter is synced up at a vertical level with every other Christmas. Easter. If you took time and extended it out as a single line, we are today further from that first advent than ever. But if it's a spiraling line moving upwards, layering on itself, we are actually closer today to that first advent because the time we dwell in this advent is a deep time. In the one sense, it is deeply spiritual. 
You could mix the metaphor. It is a thin time. We are very porous to the realities of Advent. Time gets wibbly-wobbly when we start thinking about it in these grand senses. But this is how time works for all of us. Ritual, routine, rhythms bring us into the same patterns year over year over year. And so in a certain sense, it's, it's kind of silly to ask if Christ is referring only to one ending or another, because he's also referring to today. Today. He's referring to right now, the advent of Christ in my life, the advent of Christ in your life today. Famous line in scripture that says, today is the day of salvation. Because today is the day when you will encounter Christ. When Christ will come to you. That may be in a way that is familiar to all the other days you live, but it may not be. If today is the day where you sense Christ's coming to you, you can respond. And my guess is that for most of us, there are lots of times where we feel like something is drawing close and we push it away. Or times where we feel like we are being invited into something, but we find ourselves distracted. And so to hear that today is the day of salvation is to recognize that today, if you sense Christ coming close, there is a response that you can have. And that response to the advent of Christ is a true end of what has been for you, apocalyptic end to something that has been, and a resurrection or a new beginning of something that has come. In the Christian tradition, the monks would talk about how every day is a day of death. That just as time moves in that circle upward and upward, our lives and our days do. You can even think about this in your own life. Like when you wake up in the morning, there's that feeling of like, you know, if you're having a great day, like, oh boy, a new day. Or if you're like me this morning, there's that feeling of like, oh boy, 10 more minutes, boom. Uh, But whatever day you have and whenever you finally get up, you can think about your bed as a resting place. You're propelled out from your bed, like shot off. And like a spaceship, you go all the way out to the furthest point in your day, the furthest place you go from home, the furthest emotionally you are from rest. You enter into the unknown of the day, and then you begin to feel that gravitational pull on your day, bringing you back into your home, back to your table, back to your closing prayers, back to your bed, and then you go to sleep, and you're dead. Kind of, emotionally. It's like you don't know, right? And so the monks would talk about how every night going to sleep was a little death, a little welcome into death, a moment to lay in the ground and practice dying. This is why it's good sometimes to go to sleep without anything distracting you, like a television or music. It is good sometimes to simply lay in your bed and recognize that when you fall asleep, that is to you indistinguishable from your death. And so it's a time to search your heart. And it's a time to ask Christ to appear. And it's a time to prepare yourself for what will come for you, which is your death. Because you and I will die, so may we remain vigilant. The vigil is the Latin word for watch or awake. May we remain awake through our days. Alert. May we remain 
committed to the one task that Christ has given us. At the end of this, he uh, mentions that it's like a master who leaves and leaves all the household servants in charge of things. The beautiful thing is that none of us have to keep watch for everything. We only have to keep watch for the thing that God has given us to keep watch over. Where do you keep watch? What has Christ assigned to you this day? Is this keeping watch over a loved one? Or keeping watch over a neighborhood? Keeping watch over a congregation? Or keeping watch over your children? Keeping watch over those few issues of justice and righteousness which Christ will assign to you. And keeping watch on your one thing means that you must, by necessity, not give your attention to anything else. The thing Christ calls you to keep watch on is your only responsibility. Anything beyond what you are called to be vigilant about is distraction. Whether good or evil, it is distraction. Keep watch today. Keep watch for apocalyptic events that will come to us. Keep watch for the work that Christ will give you to do. Keep watch for the ways that Christ will manifest himself to you to get your attention and longs for you to respond in a personal way. And finally, keep watch because it might just like literally be the end of the world today. And Christians have known this, and they've thought about this, and they kept thinking about it because it was so helpful to think that a day might come where all of this violence and all this inequality and all this injustice and corruption just ends. And I don't know what it looks like. Like, the Bible is very strange, and you never quite know when it's hyper-literal or when it's metaphorical. It's true either way. I don't know if this is like the, the final dawn of Christ is like all of a sudden all of us are just like, Christ Jesus is Lord, and we all fall on our knees everywhere in the whole world. Like, maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's just like a psychic moment where we all click into Christ is Lord, and it's, you know, that's the cloud. Or maybe it's like you're on your phone, and suddenly it's like, boom, boom, Jesus is Lord on all of our phones at once, like an Amber Alert for Christ. And you're like, oh my word, it's, and then like people see it and a bunch of people have heart attacks because Christ is Lord and they die and a bunch of people are like, Christ is Lord and they start worshiping and maybe that's the cloud. It's a dumb joke, all right. Can you kill the heat, by the way? Is there a way to kill the heat? It just popped on. So our heater just popped on, but it's warm enough in here. Maybe it's just like that, the heater pops on. Christ is here. But, but also, I, I think it's good sometimes to think metaphorically about these things just to realize it's not so ridiculous that there is some way that this might appear in a way that's familiar. But equally, there's no reason to believe you won't just look up and see a cloud and Jesus like, this is how I choose. Because these are all things beyond us. And, and let's not be arrogant enough to decide we know how the God one should return. But humility an openness, and imagination, but above all, watchfulness. That's the word. For whatever way Christ might appear. One last note. 
I think it's worth really taking Jesus seriously, especially in a text like this. Because I don't know if you caught it, but like, he called all of this. In that text, he says, the heavens, the skies, the heavens will fade away. The earth, all form, all matter, it will fade away. But my words will never fade away. That is a big claim to make. Like if in this sermon I was like, and my words will never fade away. (laughs) It's just like, they'll be gone in, uh, you know, two hours. Like, you'll all forget what I said. That's fine. I know I've done this a while. I know how this goes. The seeds will go out. That's great. But like, there's no, no one's remembering these words. And, and, you know, maybe they're on a sermon podcast. (gasps) But how long until that podcast number is just zero every week forever? Not that long. So these words will go out, but they will fade away. And the words of many great leaders and kings and CEOs and important people, they might say, my words will never go away, but they're forgotten. They die. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, to a small group of Israelites, says, my words will never fade away. And 2,000 years ago, on Turtle Island, there are people gathering all over the place to read about how he called it. I'm not going to say that's a sign and a wonder, but I don't know what else you're looking for if you're on the fence about Jesus. If somebody calls it 2,000 years ago in a little village and then is executed by the superpower of the day and he's right, just don't be like, there's no way he'd come back on a cloud. We have no idea. But it seems like he's on to something. And so be watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful this Advent. Amen.